0: exposure is it, it doesn't mean just vulnerabilities anymore it's it's you know cloud misconfigurations and you know human uh, issues phishing. you know there's all sorts of like, exposures that a company uh, you know has or any sort of company of size and so really attack surface management is about kind of grabbing all of those different challenges and trying to you know put process around them you know anything that exposes the company to risk uh we should we should have a pretty good handle on and attack service management, I think, leans more toward the operational side, you know, sec ops, as opposed to the GRC side of risk. Um, it's more about, you know, identifying those things.
1: Welcome to the Defenders Advantage Frontline Stories. I'm your host Carrie Matry, and joining me today is Jonathan Cran. He is our lead for the Google Mandiant Attack Surface Management product. So, welcome, Jonathan. Hey, Carrie. Great to be here. Thanks. So, do you want to give us a little bit of um, background on what you do, where you've been, uh, you know, how you got into this role?
0: Yeah, uh, I'd love to. Uh, I've been in the security industry for a long time, 20, 25 years at this point, um, you know, sort of started out as a IT admin, uh, you know, went through a bunch of kind of critical, you know, incidents, uh, SAS or Blaster, uh, those sorts of things, and uh, ended up, you know, getting really interested in security. I uh, went and started out as a pen tester, uh, At a company named Rapid7, and then eventually, you know, moved through uh, a bunch, a series of startups uh, until... You know, it uh, effectively started my own company, Intrigue, and we got picked up by Mandiant in 2021, uh, and then I've been on that journey ever since, you know, sort of bringing our product, which was focused on attack service management, into Mandiant, and then ultimately uh, part of the Mandiant Advantage portfolio.
1: Awesome. Awesome. And that's perfect because today we're going to be talking about exposure management and how it affects risk and how organizations are are using it. Let's set the foundation. So we're talking about, if we're just talking about attack surface management, well, I could come and say, well, we've been doing vulnerability scanning and management for a couple decades. So how is it different now than what we were doing 20 years ago?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, the, the reality is, yeah, it, it, it was. We've, we've been doing it for years and years. Um, we sort of went through this you know, growth, I think, as an industry, uh, you know, starting with kind of manual things and you know, a few tools, and that became the vulnerability assessment. Uh, market and then ultimately that merged you, you know it effectively grew into the vulnerability management market uh, and then that kind of evolved you know people realized hey we have too much to do and you know everything has vulnerabilities and why are we even doing this well well let's prioritize it that became the risk-based risk-based vulnerability management market Th- then eventually like you know exposure is it, it doesn't mean just vulnerabilities anymore it's it's you know cloud misconfigurations and you know, human uh, issues, phishing. You know, there's all sorts of like, exposures that a company, uh, you know, has or any sort of company of size. And so, really, attack surface management is about kind of grabbing all of those different challenges and trying to, you know, put process around them. I, you said exposure uh, management early on, and yeah, I, I think exposure is a good word for it. It's, you know, anything that exposes the company to risk. Uh, we should we should have a pretty good handle on. And attack surface management, I think, leans more toward the operational side, you know, set ops, as opposed to the GRC side of risk. Um, it's more about you know identifying those things and putting an understanding around where where those gaps are, what those exposures are. So yeah, traditional vulnerability management, but also cloud, uh, but also you know human, third party, all of it. I mean, I consider all of that attack surface management. Okay.
1: Well, and you know, like you you mentioned. <laughs> When we started, there were so many vulnerabilities. It's like, oh, great, what are we supposed to do with this? And so a lot of times you kind of say, well, there's too much. So you get kind of paralyzed in inaction because you don't know how to prioritize. Now, you know, in general, if we talk about a SOC and we talk about security analysts, they're using threat intelligence to kind of figure out like what they're going to do in the SOC. You know how I know that the new kind of proactive exposure management type solutions are using threat intelligence. So how has that become kind of a centerpiece of risk reduction
0: yeah great question i mean prioritization is is key right um and using threat intel to prioritize is sort of the first and most obvious use case of it you know as you think about this this you know this large number of things that you have to deal with and kind of all these different categories which are different groups within the organization i think of threat intel is as, as sort of the, the centerpiece if you will of uh good prioritization of good decision making you know, without understanding your your adversary, it's very difficult to understand kind of like what to focus on, where to put those limited resources. You know, there's there's very simple things, right? We mentioned cde uh, based prioritization and understanding, you know, how these vulnerabilities are being used in the wild. I think is really key. Um, you know, having threat intel that tells you if there's something that's already compromised in your environment, I think that's a really helpful um, set of intelligence that that can be you know used by a bunch of different teams. Um, having an understanding of you know who's who's impersonating your brand or or who's setting up phishing attacks against your employees that's really helpful especially if you can kind of pre-cog it a little bit and understand you know their their sort of uh, attack vectors that we can prevent um, stolen credentials come to mind as as sort of you know what, what was traditionally considered threat intelligence but really like we just need a process around this and you know it's an exposure for our business if somebody already has you know credentialed access into a Know, system, look at, you know, any number of breaches this year where, you know, stolen creds were used as the initial entry point. So, you know, I mean, without a strong capability, I guess, to, to effectively overlay this intelligence across all these different exposures, it's very difficult to you know, to take those limited resources and put them in the right place. So, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's all about having that ability to, you know, have that intelligence and then, you know, distribute that out to the various places that need it.
1: And I know we, we kind of overplay the Log4j example, but can you kind of walk us through how threat intelligence is kind of overlaid into preventing log
0: Yeah, good one. Uh, yeah, I, I do think it's, uh, I do think it's overused as an example, but, you know, we, we definitely have... Continue to have you know findings uh, with Log4j on customer. In fact, I just saw one this morning where you know it's it, it was in a generic web app. Log Log4j was installed in so many different applications, commercial applications. Um, and the thing that kind of surprised me about this, and I don't think most folks realize this, is it's not just a library that gets installed in a custom app and happens to be in in your environment once. It was in so many different commercial apps. You know things from uh, VMware and ping identity and, and other companies that embedded it. And those, those became defined attack vectors early on and having the intelligence to say like, this group is going after this particular product because they reverse engineered that particular product and knew where log4j was. Well, it became sort of a, a specific CVE for that particular product. It's, it's really important. I think to, to have that level of visibility of what attackers are doing I think it's very challenging to try to predict all of those things. But if you can kind of put them into a category of like very sophisticated actors who are able to do things that are really, really difficult to prevent and kind of like the generic, um, more easy to prevent uh, types of, of attacks and focus on that, that low-hanging fruit to start with, I think that really, really helps.
1: Um, no, I had another question about Log4J as well as. We, you know when we have the automated systems, we have attack surface management, we have you know exposure management sort of solutions. so how would those be used you know to find log 4 j? how deep can they go?
0: yeah, it's a good question i mean it it really depends on how in depth the the capabilities of discovery are um, you know you 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 definitely want to have some amount of active checking for these vulnerabilities like i I'll, I'll just tell you kind of exactly what we end up doing. Uh, you know, we, we have an active check that goes out and tests a bunch of different headers and cookies looking for that generic kind of, uh, you know, embedding of log4j. And if it fires, of course, we catch it through a DNS request and, you know, surface an issue. But also having specific checks for those individual products that I mentioned is really key. But that's not enough, you know, like it, it, it simply um, it simply finds the known patterns and you know, in a case of a log4j, which is just like this long-lived vulnerability that will never die, um, you really want to have some amount of proactive, hey, this thing's running Java and, or this application's running Java. Let's go talk to the team and understand, you know, do we have a process around their library management? And ultimately, do do we have log4j anywhere in the code base? And, you know, that, I think that level of, embedding security into decisions and, and helping sort of inform where to spend time. Like, hey, this team over here, we know runs Java. We know they've they've deployed these applications, um, but we don't have a process around third-party library management for them. Like, prompting those sorts of questions is really key. So I mean, to answer your question, I think you want to have as much visibility as possible. And some of that visibility is really, really difficult to get with any sort of traditional vulnerability management. or you know, things that aren't looking broadly for applications or or virtual hosts on the attack surface, it isn't plugged into all your cloud accounts, like any organization of size, especially those that have, you know, acquired companies along the way, it's going to be challenging to have that level of visibility. And so, so I would just, you know, I I would try to find something that integrates with as many systems as possible and tries to pull as much data and visibility back to you as possible. You're the, you know, you're the security team, you've got to have that level of intelligence. Both about the attack surface and also about the threat, you know, landscape in order to be able to cross-reference those and figure out where to spend time.
1: Well, but there's a, there's also a, a crosshairs, a, a meeting of you know too much visibility. I mean, yes, we want all the visibility in the world, um, but you know, I can think like if if you're getting real time updates about vulnerability or you know from the scanning machines, you're basically going to be playing whack-a-mole, trying to get after all of these. So where is kind of the balance between how often you should scan versus, you know, having people that can deal with it? What have have you kind of seen customers do?
0: Um, Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, What we end up sort of recommending is like daily visibility of everything. At least every 24 hours, you should have, you know, sort of a refresh on everything. It's case by case, and it's really difficult to answer that question generally. Um, You know, you've got environments where, Things are ephemeral, and things are only up for a few minutes at a time. You know, you think about cloud accounts, um, so that requires sort of a different approach than you know legacy systems that have kind of been there forever and are in this like very defined patching cadence. Um, yeah, I mean, I th- I think uh, I, I I'm team as much visibility as possible. Um, you know, with the with the the real problem, I think, is a search problem. Um, You should try to transform a visibility problem uh, by pre-capturing as much of this information as possible, and then getting it into a database to where you can search it. And then, you know, adding owner names to those assets. I mean, as I talk with customers, like the number one challenge is uh, associating who is responsible for this technology with, hey, we found it. And that problem is not getting easier, uh, but it's, it's, you know, it's, because the attack service keeps growing. But um, what I would say is the technology is getting better at sort of auto-detecting these things as you plug into cloud accounts. You you generally know or you're able to query which cloud account belongs to which team. Um, That stuff's programmatically available. Um, But, you know, I I think that, you know, beating up the CMDB as like uh, a terrible source of information and, you know, always incomplete, I think is... No, I think everybody understands that at this point.
1: As, as someone who used to be responsible for sending out violation emails about uh, to to owners of systems about you know vulnerabilities, I can definitely uh, attest that <laughs> the databases are not updated. Finding the correct owners um, and escalating properly is is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> so-
0: use- Yeah, if you can use technology to solve that problem, you should totally do it. And uh, it it is getting somewhat easier in that respect. Automatically turning um, or automatically pulling in that data so you can turn it into a search problem, it should be the goal for most security operations teams. Yep.
1: So when you go into customers and you kind of get them set up with attack surface management with different automation, I can see, well, okay, let, let me take a step back. When I used to work in, um, you know, tools that would scan environments for applications that we're running. We'd have customers' expectations of how many applications we're going to find. And then we had the reality of, you know, maybe 10x more than what they thought that they had, and they were always shocked. So when you go in and put in, you know, a service and management type solutions, are, are customers shocked or do they kind of know what they're getting into?
0: Uh, it definitely leans towards shocked. Um, I think the awareness of that problem is higher than it used to be, um, and and I would also say like it's, it's well understood that the modern application is just an API, and oftentimes the API attack surface is not well understood, let alone the fact that there's an application there. So um, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 increasingly John, Think about some of the big breaches this year. They were API, uh, uh, you know, API centric or API initial entry point. Um, and I mean, I think traditional tools have not done a good job of figuring out, you know, all the different subdomains and therefore, you know, being able to understand when I send that subdomain to this application, I get back a different host, a different V host. And so it's not just you know, the, the, the applications, the application teams that you have inside your organization, it's the fact that they deployed on Tomcat and Tomcat still has manager app running. If you access it by IP. So it's just it's just this, this really deep um, problem to be able to enumerate all of that. And it's really the goal of, of sort of the discovery engine of attack surface management, which is combining techniques from sort of traditional vulnerability testing, traditional DAS testing, um, and trying to identify all those different entry points or or endpoints of an application, both you know, at a top level and then also the individual API endpoints. So yeah, I mean, it's, it, I won't say it's an impossible problem, but it is, it is definitely, um, there's definitely a lot of attack surface there.
1: <laughs> right, well, and, you know, IT teams understand this, security teams understand this, but the even the C-suite is starting to care. They may not understand each of the different, what each vulnerability means, but because of the headlines, because of the recent breaches, you know, they're, they're involved, but, you know how did it, how did it get there? How did it get from just IT caring to C-suite? Yeah,
0: well, I mean, every company is a software company now, right? No matter if they're in mining or they're in, you know, the most sophisticated, you know, it's it's you know a SaaS company in San Francisco. Um, I think breaches obviously have been you know top of mind for boards for years at this point, um, and in it's, it's been very difficult to find CISOs that are able to kind of effectively translate the uh, operational and IT risk into terms uh, for the board. But I think we're getting there, right? Like uh, more and more, um, I think there's there's both tooling, there's smarts in terms of people, there's experience uh, that are able to kind of translate that. Doesn't mean they're effective at the, managing the risk necessarily, um, but at least I think there's more awareness about this, and, and you know, it's, it kind of boils down to complexity to a degree. The more complexity of the IT operational environment, the more likely there is a breach. Um, and you know, th- there's certainly no less complexity this year than there was last year. I think we're just headed down that path of increasing complexity for a long time.
1: So, Jonathan, I mean, that really highlights the how different every environment is. You know, there's no one size fits all solution here. So what factors need to be considered by organizations to to kind of understand what capabilities they need? I mean, for exposure management, what questions do they need to ask?
0: Yeah, good good question. Uh, The exposure management is really about, you know, understanding, you know, broadly uh, the threats to your overall organization. And so, you know, the, the shorthand for that, I suppose, is you need to think like a threat actor. Need to be aware of of, you know what techniques exist uh you need to run like real scenarios uh that that are you know being used by threat actors today whether it be phishing or whether it be um you know looking for exposed applications and you got to be able to prioritize those things based on you know your particular profile if you're a manufacturing company and you know the the real threat is those those uh, centers being shut down or, or operations being shut down. You've got to focus on actors that are, you know, targeting those things, targeting you uh, and really prioritize your investments to protect those operations, you know, build resilience in that. And so, you know, it's, it's more of a, you know, it's more strategic approach uh, to this overall challenge of prioritization and understanding kind of like what the real uh, attack surface looks like.
1: Yeah. And You know, something that keeps coming up as well is that, you know, it's not just an IOC. It's not just a CVE that's being exploited. It's it's these threat actors. And yes, they're using this vulnerability to get in, but you're not targeted by a CVE. You are targeted by a threat group. So, you know, having access to that intelligence is going to help you figure out all of the um, approaches they're going to use. To try to attack you,
0: yeah, ex- exactly, and and they have bosses and budgets too, right? In many cases, threat actors have you know these these limitations, and if you can kind of you know understand what their operations look like and and how they're they're targeting you, uh, you know, you can often you know shortcut and and prioritize the investments you need to make. And I would just say like, you know, it's not individual actors themselves. You really do need to understand the landscape um, and you know initial access brokers. Uh, have only increased operations. So, you know, getting that first shell in a particular company, you know, how much does a shell into your organization actually really cost today? Right? You should have a pretty clear understanding of that as a CISO uh, because, you know, that's just one uh, layer of the overall threat surface.
1: You you talked about prioritization, but, you know, how does this increase situational awareness, uh, awareness of exposures, the growing attack surface, the knowledge of a threat profile, all the things that you mentioned, how do those really influence business decisions? And what are you seeing? You know, how are you seeing customers' behavior changing?
0: For CISOs today, you're kind of advising across many different aspects of the business, and uh, you've got you know many workloads moving into the cloud, uh, and so you know having an understanding of you know wh- where the where the threat actors are targeting you, um, having an understanding of, of those exposures um, guides kind of how you go through the process of advising, you know, engineering. Hey, we really need to move this sensitive thing uh, into a you know into a faster uh, process to get it into the cloud. We don't want to keep spending resources, you know, uh, just patching these things. Um, there's a you know for, for for example this this week there's a new Outlook vulnerability that's really key. Um, we need to take that out of the existing cycle and get that patched faster, and that that costs resources, right? Being able to pull those things out, and so you know, there's kind of these micro decisions in terms of individual vulnerabilities, but more strategically, um, having a, a really good understanding of your exposure and having a really good understanding of of the intelligence and and you know, what the actors are doing, who's targeting you, that can help you make those macro decisions too about what's important to your business. And then ultimately, how to shift and prioritize those those strategic decisions, bring those forward, and you become a trusted advisor to your overall peers in the C-suite and to the board. Right? You're a you're a critical part of that decision-making uh, process at this point.
1: Well, I'm going to wrap this up with the uh, you know the juicy question, I guess. You know, you've been in the industry for decades. Now, a lot has changed. A lot is a lot remains the same, but in the next decade. What are you most excited about? What sort of changes are you hoping come to fruition?
0: Yeah, yeah, great question. Uh, you know you're right uh, yeah, you know 20 years of, of kind of working on these these problems, uh, you know there's, there's still a lot of things that are very similar. you know phishing is still very much a problem. Uh, business email compromise still very much a problem. Uh, you know like weak, weak you know applications both in your own, Uh, attack surface as well as kind of like within those of partners, still a problem. Um, You know, what changes? I think, you know, we've got, you know, things like quantum cryptography are on the horizon, uh, but they're still probably at least a decade out. Um, What I think is actually most surprising uh, that I've seen over the last, uh, you know, few months even, and and I think it's accelerating faster than anybody realizes is, you know, generative AI. Um, And I think when we in cybersecurity you tend to think about that at least today, we're thinking about it mostly as like, you know, it, it improves phishing and it, it kind of makes it possible to generate these, you know, uh, you know scenarios in which you can kind of attack organizations. But the the reasoning capability of of some of these these most recent models and the ability to uh you know go from, you know, here's a set of data about, you know, you can scan the internet in what, you know, 30, 40 minutes with a couple hundred bucks at this point you know, taking that data set and pivoting that into, you know, here's here's the organizations I can get initial access in, you know, in minutes, uh, even seconds, uh, being able to process that. I think there's, there's real concern, I guess I would have in terms of these capabilities. And when you think about pen testing and, uh, you know, the, the process of, of identifying exposures in organizations, it's really kind of fancy data analysis. You first get the data, you get it into a database. You look across that data, and you look for patterns that indicate weakness. You look for vulnerabilities, and um, you know that 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 process is only going to speed up. We're we've gone from like months from when an exploit is released down to days, down to even hours now, and I think we're getting down to minutes um, to where you know organizations will be attacked with sort of this this recently announced vulnerability in minutes. Um, and so you know it's it's both a a powerful capability. It's also you know a potentially dangerous capability. And what can organizations do? I mean, getting operations in order, getting exposure uh, management in place, um, having intelligence about what what you know what is actively being attacked and where you are likely to be uh, attacked, I think is really, really key. That's the best thing people can do now. Right.
1: All right. well, with that, thank you, Jonathan, for joining me today. Um, To all of our listeners out there, thank you for joining us, and please join us again for the next episode of the Defenders Advantage Frontline Stories.